Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian, and hope everybody's having a great President's Day weekend. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. A mixed week on Wall Street as investors worry inflation isn't cooling fast enough and the economy might face a harder landing than hoped. Airbus and Safran report results as Saab holds its capital markets day. As Russia steps up its attack on Ukraine, Kiev's allies worldwide vow to send more equipment to the country to beat back Moscow's assault on the first anniversary of Russia's invasion, as President Biden shows his solidarity with a surprise visit to the Ukrainian capital. All eyes are now on whether the United States and other powers will equip Ukraine with modern combat aircraft and what that means for the conflict as well as industry. The defense budget outlook as the debt limit looms as lawmakers vow to boost spending to better deter China in the wake of Beijing's brazen spy balloon flight across America that appears to have triggered a tectonic reaction. The Pentagon's rising hypersonic investment, Bell's new helicopter contract, and an update on what's next in Russia's war on Ukraine as Iran takes delivery of new fighter aircraft. Joining us today for our roundtable are Dr. Rocketron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tusa of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy here in Washington, D.C. A quick program note, we recorded this episode just before the president's visit to Ukraine, which is why we didn't discuss it, but we will have far more on what the trip means on tomorrow's strategy series program with Richard Fontaine of the Center for a New American Security, who was in Munich over the weekend uh, and is a leading thinker uh, in Washington about the future of U.S. and international security. Before we get started, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. Here's our conversation with Ron Sash and Richard. Fascinating week, a lot of strains uh, obviously going on, everything from uh, the balloon to worries that the U.S. economy might be uh, too strong and running too hot, uh, concerns that a recession is going on. Uh, you know, first of all, Ron, as you always do, start us off, right? What were the major uh, market trends uh, and how did the group perform in relation to them, in sync to them or <laughs> against them? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think the, the thing to watch this past week, excuse me, and probably for the weeks to come will be the 10-year yield. Uh, you know, the 10-year uh, crept up from kind of that 3.4, 3.5 range percent um, that we've been at to almost 4% this week, um, and then kind of closed the week around you know, 3.8. And, and the broader question is, why, why, why did that happen? Well, uh, retail numbers came in. They were hot. Um, employment numbers came in last week, as you know. They were hot. Uh, and inflation declined less than people were hoping. So you've got, like you mentioned, you know, in your in your in your entree, um, yeah, the economy is probably a little bit hotter than folks had hoped, and there's this worry about lingering inflation and so on and so forth, and that the Fed will probably have to go higher than maybe many in the market expected. Um, I'm not the economist at B of A, so I, I can't say anything for B of A, but my junior varsity forecast is we're probably going to be. Um, somewhere in the call it six percent range, plus or minus fifty basis points, when it's all said and done, and be there for a while. Um, so just keep an eye on that. But that was like the big macro thing that was driving the market. When you peeled down into our group, the S and P on all that was down about uh, a little over a percent, which you know in the big picture is just sort of noise. 
Uh, Boeing was down 2%, a little bit worse than the market. Uh, uh, when you look at the winners of the week, um, Northrop was up about uh, just under 2%. Raytheon was up about a percent. GD was up about a percent. GE, the engine company, not GD, the, uh, the military company, um, and business company, uh, GE was up about half a percent. Uh, the real winner on the week was Palantir. They reported this week and uh, they showed growth in their commercial business and actually made gap earnings. So it was up 21% on the week. So I think that was kind of the, the real thing there. Uh, when you look at oil prices, they've been pretty steady now for a while. Uh, if, if you kind of rewind the last couple of podcasts, you'll probably hear me say the same thing. WTI around 75, Brent around mid 80s. And that's kind of where they've been for a while. Uh, and I think that gives you a, a real wrap up uh, where the markets were for the week. Um, you uh, r- reminded me to ask you, you mentioned Boeing, and so that triggered because I know you guys had a call, uh, B of A had a call with John Byrne, uh, who used to lead Boeing's uh, supply chain efforts. But real real quick, why was, uh, how did Bo- Boeing perform uh, where it did, right? Uh, General Electric did disclose a little bit of news about testing of the XA100 engine. Clearly, GE, is, uh, GE Aerospace is the sponsor uh, of our Air Power podcast. But sort of give us, give us a sense on why we saw the movement we saw on both Boeing and GE. Yeah, GE, I think, was just kind of moving around with the market. I mean, uh, I think there is some speculation that we'll get some update uh, when the budget drops. I think it's on March 9th on the, the new engine program and what's going on and when there could be a down select. We'll, we'll, we'll stay tuned there. Uh, I know that's been a focused effort for GE, so we'll see, we'll see what happens. Uh, uh, on Boeing, in, and I mean, maybe for that matter, Airbus, I mean, just like, let's say the OEs writ large, um, we've been getting all kinds of conflicting signals from the suppliers. Halmet reported this week, and Halmet said, you know, they're building to uh, 30 737s per month uh, this year, uh, and I think 53 or 54 uh, A320s, which is behind, you know, where the OEs were talking. Spirit Aerosystems reported last week, uh, and they said they're going to deliver, you know, 420 737s, uh, specializes anyway. Um, and that was well ahead of where, where Boeing is. So you've got this, you know, you know conflicting messages in the supply chain. And that's what drove our call with John Byrne. For those of you who don't know John, John was the head of supply chain at Boeing for many years. Um, he's um, yeah, very clear, very blunt uh, speaker. Uh, I, you'd be hard pressed to find anybody in the world who knows more about real kind of real applied supply chain at an OEM than John because he did it for so long and he's you know, very, you know, was very good at it. Uh, way back when he was the, the the person that led the effort that Boeing had setting up their uh, operation in the Urals, uh, you know, with uh, on titanium and was also part of one taking it apart when they did after Crimea. Um, so anyway, uh, the, the call with John, um, he sent a message and I don't think any of this is a big surprise, but labor is a big issue across across the supply chain at all levels. Um, and you know, he said even before the, the pandemic, uh, they were, they meaning you know, the Boeing company and their suppliers were losing people to the likes of Amazon warehouses and so on and so forth. So if you, you look at kind of the lower level uh, and the, the lower skilled labor, um, they were losing that to other industries. Uh, and then that just worsened during the pandemic. And then at the higher at the higher level, just in terms of skill level, uh, both in terms of you know engineering jobs or just you know, more skilled skilled labor in terms of hands-on labor, um, again, same thing. That crew of of workforce tends to be, you know, they were in their, uh, like, how can I say, it, longer in the tooth, and during the uh, pandemic, uh, decided to retire and do other things <laughs> and move right. on. Uh, and the industry is just really suffering with that. And then 
specifically, and he was, I think he highlighted this. We heard this at conferences. And I know uh, Kevin Michaels, um, you know, or if you don't know who works with Richard Abalafia, another, you know, expert on the supply chain um, has pointed out and, and um, John brought this up on the call. When you go down to that lower level in the supply chain, you know, kind of the tier ones and tier two, some of the machine shops and some bigger companies, um, they're really suffering from a financial perspective in that uh, they got supported by PPP during, um, during the worst of COVID. And now that's over. They have bloated balance sheets. They don't have the money to do the ramp. And they're, they're, there's a, a lot of um, discontinuity in terms of the, the financing of these companies. And that has to get sorted out. Um, he pointed out, I think, after 9-11 and that, that relative short disruption to the industry compared to what we just went through, took a couple of years for the industry to kind of get back on track. And that was a short disruption in a more normalized working environment. Um, so, you know, honestly, you know, he suggested that we'll get to the rates that the OE suggests eventually, but the timing will be very uncertain. And it's a really, really difficult environment to get there. Um, there's a lot uh, for us uh, to dissect. And thankfully, uh, both uh, Sash and Richard can, can help us uh, break uh, some of that uh, down. And Richard, I'm going to ask you about the Air India order that has, I think, now been disclosed like three or four times, <laughs> uh, you know, like having been leaked, having been covered, having been refined and and the the impact that that's uh, that's have that's going to have on the market and and did have a little bit on 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 markets. Um, Sash, sort of take us away. Um, some inflation themes in Europe, a realization, right? I mean, the Burkunda conference is going on. The war is going to be with us for uh, some time, as long as it takes, which was a very positive message uh, to be coming out of uh, uh, NATO. Um, and and the, the Munich conference. Um, and also talk to us a little bit about what we heard. Uh, you know, first start off with the market trends, and then I want to ask you about the performance of Airbus, Saab's Capital Markets Day, and Safran results as well, uh, and what they tell us, because, you know, you sort of, you know, may have nailed it, right? 2022, the lost uh, year. But start us off on sort of the broader market and where we are. Yeah, I mean, okay, you know what? The European aerospace and defense sector had a great week last week. Um, with a very, very small number of exceptions. Stocks were up high single digits or better. Um, the average for the you know 20 odd stocks that we cover in Europe it was, was up 6%. Civil stocks just ahead of defense, interestingly, um, 6.5% compared to defense at 5.8. But there were some huge performances. I mean, Airbus was up 10.6%, Kongsberg up 13.1%, Saab up 10%. Um, you know, these this. For, for a week that had a handful of, uh, of um, results, uh, Airbus uh, um, and uh, Safran in particular. And, uh, you know, it was a really, really positive week um, for the sector. Now, I just wanted actually to pick up on a couple of uh, on Ron's comments about supply chain, but particularly the labour issues, because we got fascinating um, comments on that from both Airbus and Saab this week. Um, Saab had a capital markets day. Um, uh, both in Stockholm, but then visiting their um, uh, radar business in Gothenburg. That was absolutely fascinating. And what they were saying was um, they are benefiting big time from the tech melt meltdown. Uh, they said Spotify, which is based in, um, in, in or around Stockholm, has been laying people off. And they said it has never been easier to, or not never, but certainly not, not recently, been easier to uh, recruit. And they made the really interesting point that they are finding that um, uh, you know, people they're recruiting from tech are looking to join Saab because they actually want to join a, a, an organization that's got a bit of structure uh, and, you know, has been around for 90 years. Looks like it, you know, it's got a reasonable chance of being around for many decades to come yet. 
Um, and it would be interesting to see for how long that sort of cultural advantage stays with Saab. I, you know, I, I hope for some considerable time. The other point they made, which was really interesting, um, is their strapline, making, uh, making people's and people and society safer, um, really resonates with younger potential employees uh, uh, at the moment as a consequence of the war in Ukraine. So um, they're finding it a more positive recruiting environment. Clearly, they still got to turn those recruits into productive employees. And the comment that Airbus CEO Guillaume Forey made this week was absolutely fascinating. He just said the industry, now he's talking more civil than defense, but you know, he just has had a, a structural loss of productivity. He just said it's been really damaging productivity. And the, the thing that he really blamed was homeworking. So basically people got into the habit of working at home during COVID, uh, you could take the dog out for a walk. You might, um, you know, even after COVID, you might take the kids to scouts or, or whatever else. And he just says this is a, a structural damage to the productivity of this industry, which is going to take a long time to solve. Um, and uh, I think that was that, that was a real eye opener uh, for you know for us. I think a lot of people would agree with that, right? It you you know when you're running an office setting, it is somewhat more structured. You sort of can't screw around as much. Whereas when you, you know, do work from home and that becomes sort of the norm, you're not interacting with people the way you do, uh, right? And so, you know, you, you're distracted. You'll say like, well, I'll just take a walk. I have time between, um, you know, that's something you wouldn't do, for example, in a, in a work, you know, mow your grass or what, what have you. Um, walk us through uh, Airbus, Safran. Uh, you know, you mentioned a little bit Saab's Capital Markets, uh, uh, Capital Markets Day. But what, what did we hear from Airbus and the last year? And what did we hear from Safran when it comes to where it is uh, we're going? Uh, and, you know, obviously both of them are highly dependent on supply chains, ultimately. Yeah. Um, well, that, and that's the interesting thing. Um, supply chain is still an issue. Airbus um, referred multiple times to the adverse operating environment. Um, they pushed the A320 family ramp out another 12, 15 months. Interestingly, they decided to ramp the A350 by 50%. A350 is going up from a bit under six to nine over the next three years. Now, are they going to get there by N25? I very much doubt it. But, you know, when you've just had a bit, um, some, some big orders come in um, or, or re-emerge in your order book, I can, I can see why they've done that. But I think what was interesting is that Airbus said that the supply chain problems have moved down. And actually, they talk about tiers three and four, not even tier two anymore. It's the really small things. And it's the um, you know, the, the one component or a handful of electronic components missing stops uh, um, an aircraft uh, being built. Um, and so it's a much more diffuse problem. Um, you know, the engine companies actually got a pretty, uh, pretty much a free pass um, on the uh, Airbus call this week. But here's the other thing. It's Airbus's internal performance that is still uh, a problem. They've, we've talked about it on the show before. Mm -hmm. They've got a quality problem. Um, John Pluger, the uh, head of, uh, 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 of Air Lease, talks about the fact that the aircraft that they are being offered now to take delivery of have 10 pages of faults and things that need corrections on them. And pre-pandemic, it would have been one. Um, and I think that's a broad issue. Uh, you know, it's not just an Airbus issue, but it certainly is an Airbus issue, see what I mean? Um, and so poor, poor internal productivity, um, that's uh, that's hurting them. Poor quality, and I think that you know they have announced guidance for 2023. That's pretty much exactly the same as it was for 2022. Uh, so you know nothing has changed. Volumes haven't gone up, um, 
you know, they're stuck, and they're actually stuck at under 50 A320s a month. This idea that they were going to end 2022 at 55 A320s a month for the birds. Um, and just one other point that's worth thinking about, um, their uh, defence and space business is performing badly. I mean, you know, uh, Guillaume Forey said uh, it was a difficult year for Airbus Defence and Space. I've, I mean, no other defence company that we know has described the current environment as being difficult or bad, except clearly in human humanitarian terms. But, you know, this is the best environment for defence in decade, decade and a half, I would say. Um, but Airbus isn't seeing that yet. And partly that's because they've got a very narrow product range. They're really only making money on missiles and Eurofighter. Um, part of it is their space business is in uh, a horrible transition. They've lost all the access to Russian launchers, uh, the Soyuz. Um, Ariane 5 is in the, on its last legs, or actually its last launches. And Ariane 6, they can't develop it properly. And Vega has been grounded because the damn thing crashed. So it's a, it, this is what, you know, space is not as, is never as big as you think as a business, but when it goes wrong, it, it just has a horrible effect on a lot of these companies. And Airbus is at the wrong end of that cycle. So, you know, probably the weakest defense and space business of any of the large caps that we look at at the moment, um, which is, uh, you know, didn't expect to have to write that. Um, Richard, uh, let me bring you in. Uh, you know, obviously, um, a lot with supply chain, a lot with where we're going on production rates. We have the 350 news. And on top of that, uh, the four time, uh, <laughs> in case we didn't get it the first time, uh, the, the four time announcement of the Air India orders and the game changing, you know, potentially game changing nature of it, even if, you know, with some of them, uh, you know, supposedly being firm orders, uh, right, a very hefty amount. Talk to us about all of that and a little bit about, you know, what the Air India order uh, really means and whether you have any more and anybody, any of you have more confidence about it today than we did say last week or the week before. Yeah. You know, um, uh, Ron's comments about the ramp up, you know, spot on, except I don't think there's even anything comparable in history. Um, you know, I mean, <laughs> this is the second year of the recovery and in aggregate, you look at value of deliveries, they rose 19% year over year which is feeble enough, but not tragic. But then you deduct, which we did, my colleagues and I did this week, you deduct out the 787s and 737 maxes that had already been built. So in terms of the actual manufacturing recovery, actual built aircraft, it only rose 11% last year. That is really super extra feeble. So went back a bit in history, and, um, you know, the last time we had a second year recovery, because we had a recovery back in, you know, 2005 from the, you know, post 9-11 and all that. The second year, 2006, saw 26% growth. And then I went further back in time and looked at the 97-98 period, which were truly horrible. You might remember the term DCAC MRM from Boeing that destroyed Boeing for a couple of years and perhaps helped them. He helped convince them that they should merge with McDonnell Douglas or something. But anyway, they, 97 over 96 was 35%. And 98 over 97 was also 35%. In other words, historically speaking, this is the worst recovery ever. And there are so many issues. My thesis remains intact that this is the first time we've got a recovery where aviation, civil aviation, is not in the lead in terms of hiring people buying stuff and whatever else. The rest of the economy is in the league. We got there too late to the game. And not only that, but you've got record levels of defense spending across the world. 
And that, of course, also competes for productive resources. So we seem to have a structural problem here. Uh, cue uh, Guillaume Fali's comments. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's more than just the impact of unproductive workers staying at home. It's, there's something more going on that I think is going to hobble us for some time to come. So, you know, into all of this, we have this environment where for the first time I feel, you know, as a market analyst, like my services perhaps aren't needed so much. <laughs> Markets are in great shape. Hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute. People people who buy your services listen to this program. I want to disabuse all of you. Uh, you know, Richard is worth every penny you're paying. Him. I'm sorry. I, well, go on. Thankfully, I'm part of a team that ignores what I say and just says, <laughs> all right, look, here's the actual supply chain. Here's what we can do. And they're contributing a lot more to the, the debate and to our clients right now, because again, markets are fine. Listen to the people who are telling you what can actually be built given the circumstances, which again are pretty terrible. Um, that's fascinating. 35 years. I've never seen that painful, really. And so in the midst of this, you get the India. Yeah, I, come on. Having your relevance questioned? Come on. Believe in me or I'll go away. Um, in the midst of this, you get the India order. And, it, you know, that is, I, I, I think we discussed this a bit last week, but I mean, who cares on so many different levels? You know, I mean, first of all, <laughs> on, on, on the one hand, you know, going after, you know, Tata might or might not reinvent aviation in India. Good luck to them. I mean, it's a good company. Air India, of course, is historically, you know, it's, it's if the Department of Motor Vehicles ran an airline, that's great. I think I'll fly DMV Air. Uh, that's not a good order book addition. Maybe talk well, in fairness, right? I mean, the company did invent the airline, ran it well before it was nationalized, right? I mean, so there was this ago, sense that they would run it better than the government would run it. Yes, they could they could learn from back, uh, you know, back in the days when they had, uh, you know, de uh, Havilland Dragon Rapids or whatever they had in service back then. Um, now, there's also the problem with the Gulf Superconnectors because they've gotten after all of India's international traffic that's worth getting. That's going to be tough to push back against. And of course, Indigo and the domestic market, tough to push back, push back against. But most of all, you know, you're adding a bunch of planes to backlogs that really can't deliver these planes or to companies that have backlogs that really can't deliver these planes. The only thing I will say is that Airbus guidance that came out um, emphasized wide body numbers that might not be tenable with, without those Air India orders, particularly moving to four A330s per month. Wow, I, I thought that program was just hanging on by a shred. And, um, and of course, you had A350s possibly getting up to six or seven per month. I can't help but think that some of that is driven by the theoretical India orders because wide body demand, as we've discussed before, is just weak as anything. I want to go to everybody else to comment on it, but I'm also, uh, uh, Richard, wanted to give you an opportunity, right? I mean, our uh, sponsor, obviously, on this program is Bell, uh, and uh, V280 uh, was a big win. We obviously have another protest on the protest uh, from Lockheed, uh, which uh, apparently can be done. And uh, JJ Gertler, my co-host on the Air Power podcast, explained it's not likely to change the uh, adjudication window that GAO is shooting for, which is about 100 days to try to resolve these uh, protests. The army maintains it's confident that it made the right uh, decision, uh, but obviously everybody's in sort of a little bit of a blackout period. But in this process, Bell also landed some pretty significant helicopter orders, uh, which we haven't been able to say in a while. Talk to us a little bit about those orders and what do you think they mean uh, for uh, a company that you know does appear to be on the upswing, especially if it can hold on 
uh, to Flara um, while also expanding, you know, a helicopter business that has seen some very, very tough years. Yeah, you know, it's um, it's pretty impressive. Um, I mean, they came to life. Good for them. Uh, <laughs> I, and explain to the order what and explain to the audience, right, what it is that happened that made it so impressive, right, uh, in terms of the order and the product and the like. Yeah, I mean, um, the Iraqis uh, purchased a wide array of uh, military helicopters. Uh, just as importantly, they had a really fantastic um, series of civil sales in 2022 that, that drove a remarkable surge that was, you know, beyond what you'd expect from a recovery. Um, you know, in aggregate, they, uh, they delivered, uh, you know, 49 407s, 83 505s, uh, 32 429s, and even the 412, which is, I, I think, maybe the oldest helicopter in production. They did better than one a month, 15. Right. So they're doing really super well. Um, you know, the, the Iraqi order for a bunch of military types, you know, I mean, they're not obvious candidates for many military orders because of course, you know, the H1 series has only been ordered by the, the Czechs and I believe the Bahrainis and, and other than that, it's a, it's a Marine thing, but, you know, historically people had ordered 412s and others for a, a variety of utility and scout missions. And they appear to be uh, coming back a bit in popularity. Uh, you know, I mean, Bell ultimately looked like a a reason to break up the last aerospace horizontal conglomerate on the planet, Textron, a, a year or two ago. And I, and I believe a couple, at least one of my colleagues on this call might believe that that's still the case. But boy, they're making a case for, you know, not only surviving, but thriving and therefore reinforcing the idea that Textron could be a, a well-run aerospace dominated, but not exclusively aerospace conglomerate. So it's, it's really quite interesting. Uh, it is. It is a fascinating story. Ron, uh, it's been a while since uh, you've had a bite at this. Uh, go ahead, because I also see you have your hand up. Yeah, just on the um, on the bell thing. I mean, it's 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 great. You know, it's, um, uh, you know, good for them. Um, international sales, depending on how they're structured, if they're fixed price or not, you know, can be um, pretty profitable or not. So we'll keep an eye on that. But I mean, it's um, um, it's it's a welcome win. Uh, and on the on the uh, flower front, that that that's good too. Um, per Richard's comment, I mean, I can't really speak to you know the company uh, breaking up or not, but I, I think more broadly in the in the market, it was just not concern over the aerospace business per se. But uh, they were diversified into and still are into some industrial and markets that really have nothing to do with um, aerospace and defense. And 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 if you believe that they were one of the bidders for. Um, uh, Aerojet Rocketdyne, which they may or may not have been, that was in the press. Um, it, it does seem maybe like there is a, a, a management um, a push to just kind of keep growing in A and D markets. So, so we'll see how that goes. But I mean, they've definitely been on a on a winning streak, and that's great. That, that that's good for them. Um, I would I would I would point out, right? I mean, the company has said we're on this redefinition path not as a, a breakup uh, uh, target uh, to sell the piece parts. Although, right, a, a bell with Flora becomes a much more attractive thing uh, to sell, but you potentially can get into antitrust issues depending on who uh, who ends up buying, obviously, the property, right? I mean, it becomes kind of an interesting dynamic, although you know there could be interest in uh, buyers, right? L3 Harris has been acquisitive and, uh, you know, they certainly um, were well, one of the bidders in Flora. Uh, right, uh, if uh, truth be told, before it necked down uh, to two uh, 
uh, to two companies. Check out our weekly podcast, Cavus Ships, hosted by Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and our Air Power podcast, sponsored by GE Aerospace, that I co-host with our very own JJ Gertler. Sash, uh, let's uh, just uh, go quickly transition to the defense uh, part uh, of uh, the discussion. A lot of uh, news, uh, Ron, want to get your sense, right? I mean, Lockheed had a pretty, uh, you know, $1.1 billion hypersonic contract uh, to put uh, sort of the common missile on the Zumwalt, uh, the, the common missile uh, the Army has developed for both the Navy, uh, right, uh, the hypersonic uh, uh, ballistic missile, uh, that would also fit on the Zumwalt class, and Lockheed is going to be doing the integration of it. We have the Munich Security Conference where everybody, uh, you know, we heard from the vice president uh, and other leaders, you know, pledging we're going to support Ukraine as long as it takes, even um, some some growing support to get F-16s in the hands uh, of, of the Ukrainians. And then against that backdrop, uh, Sash, you didn't fully discuss uh, Capital Markets Day and Saab's Capital Markets Day, right, which had very strong um, you know, undertones uh, that are uh, a, a potentially war and Russia related. Sort of walk us through all of those kind of storylines, and then we can uh, kind of pick them apart a little bit. Uh, as uh, you know, Richard, Richard and Ron can build on them. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, uh, look. First of all, Munich Security Conference is is a very very positive backdrop to um, Western support for uh, Ukraine. Um, I mean, th- this is now the third you know, major meeting that's been uh, made by either heads of state or um, uh, defence ministers or, uh, sim- you know, similar ranks in, in about the last month or so. So there's real, you know, m- momentum. And I think there's also very much an understanding that support for Ukraine is going to transition from supplying Ukraine with stuff that we have, because, you know, for a lot of countries, stuff, there isn't a lot more stuff that we have that we can give. Even though I think, and I think some, you know, UK thinks it's better off giving Ukraine everything we have in some categories because they're going to make better use of it than we are. Um, but still, you know, uh, European arsenals are, are running low. So what's increasingly happening now is that uh, European countries, and I think probably now the US, are going to start paying industry to supply Ukraine direct. Takes out a takes out a middleman, takes out a probably um, a couple of. Uh, routes on the uh, on the, the the supply chain into Ukraine, um, and we've seen that now with uh, Rheinmetall being um, being paid by Germany to uh, build three hundred thousand rounds of anti aircraft artillery uh, munitions uh, for the Gepard um, uh, anti aircraft tanks that Ukraine has got, and there are starting to be some quite big ammunition uh, artillery ammunition framework contracts going out. So that's all you know. I think very positive. How does this feed through the stocks we cover? Saab uh, last week doubled their long-term earnings, uh, you know, growth guidance. They had been guiding to about 5% uh, revenue growth over the previous um, uh, five, eight years. They'd actually done about six and a half um, per annum, which was very creditable. They're now guiding to 10% per annum. Um, Companies don't do that unless they think that there's been a a step change upwards in terms of uh, the operating (coughs) environment. And... It's one of the few companies that we look at that has got early cycle as opposed to short cycle revenues. Early cycle, stuff that uh, countries have to buy upfront when they start to rearm, which tends to be munitions and to some extent spare parts, but definitely munitions. Their ground combat business, the Carl Gustav, Enlaw, AT4, is doing incredibly well. Other stuff will follow. 
One final thing, it, it, we discussed um, a possible delivery of F-16s and how long this would take uh, last week. Um, and I was really taken by comments that um, came um, not from staff management, but, but um, you know, off, offline, just meeting various people there. Um, Saab clearly believe, well, I mean, they stated very clearly, they would take it, you know, they would deliver Griffins there um, and take Griffins CD there and it would do just fine. But they said, we can, we can teach Ukrainian pilots to fly the aircraft in a week to fight it in a month. So this idea that it takes six, nine, 12 months to do, which is the standard Western fighter syllabus is bull. All it is was, was a reason to delay and prevaricate. Um, if you have trained pilots converting them and converting them so they can do damage to uh, the opposition is a, um, and these are highly motivated, takes a lot less time. I think a big lesson from the war in Ukraine is that we, the West, train in a very inefficient way. We take a hell of a long time, we gold plate it, and um, yeah, you know, we produce fantastic trained soldiers, sailors, airmen, but at cost and, um, you know, taking a long time. That, I think, is, you know, is going to be turned on its head by this war. Uh, in, in, uh, indeed. Um, Richard, uh, right, uh, growing uh, congressional uh, support, bipartisan support, and a lot of folks have said, you know, I was, I was at an event and an overseas uh, 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 official um, and in fact, a couple of conversations sort of lauded actually the slow pace at which uh, aid has been given. I know that that sounds counterintuitive, but one of the points that both of these overseas folks from uh, some of our closest allies were saying was, um, hey, look, we're doing it with consensus. Everything we've done is with consensus. Uh, and so there's no fragmenting. You know, I mean, obviously the Hungarians and the Turks fall uh, in, in a different category. The Turks are, are helping both sides and profiting from both sides, right? I mean, helping the Ukrainians while also helping the Russians circumvent uh, sanctions, for example. Um, you know, the, the, the money that Moscow was distributing directly to politicians like Marine Le Pen are just aren't going directly from the Kremlin. They're going through Viktor Orban and Hungarians, for example, right? So there's a yin and yang going on there. But well, talk to us a little bit about you know, in the wake of the balloon, in the wake of the war, we have F-16s, we have a greater air-minded focus. It's, it's sort of changing, uh, you know, in, you know even, even in some folks who were saying, hey, let's just get back, you know, can't we all just be friends and get back to normal with China? That, that is sort of tectonically changing, right? Even in the midst of this debt struggle, folks are saying we have to spend more money on defense no matter what happens to the debt. Well, walk us through sort of the changing sentiment and, you know, focus on air, what does it mean for F-16s? What does it mean for combat aviation programs? Because the war is also a great illustration of what happens when you don't have air superiority. Yeah, I mean, I think that's uh, that's exactly the one form of defense spending that has universal application. You know, you look at this bifurcation and warfighting needs between Europe and Asia. We've all talked about it. You know, if you think the Russia confrontation is going to go on for you know for longer, you invest in artillery and tanks and, uh, and helicopters. If, if you think the Asia pivot should take priority, you invest in ships and strategic systems and, you know, V-280 rather than a helicopter, you know, just a completely different set of drivers. But the one thing that is universal is air power. Uh, you can do no harm at all in air power. And all allies, both in the, the Pacific and in um, Europe, want to need air power. Now, having said that, this remains a structured market. It has for some time. I, you know, I, I think we all 
thought this back when when Lockheed Martin was trying to take the F-16 production line and you know drown it like a puppy in a bathtub out back. I remember that about a, a dozen or 15 years ago. And, and thankfully, they didn't kill it. They decided to preserve it in Greenville, South Carolina, where it is attempting to restart. And I, I would argue it's, it's perhaps the, one of the most valuable strategic assets because a lot of countries don't want or can't afford an F-35 or would have no way of making use of it. And the F-16 as a consequence, I think is good for, could be 40, 50, 60 planes a year for at least another 10, 15 years. This is an important market. Um, and there does appear to be a fairly broad, I mean, you know, people focus on the, the handful of folks, mostly you know, Tea Party types who are protesting, but it is pretty impressive that there's this nice consensus. And, you know, yes, I was horrified by Josh Hawley's speech at the Heritage Institution, which seems to be uh, echoing the Kremlin viewpoint. Uh, but everyone else, uh, Democrat and Republican, appears to be fairly aligned on the need for high levels of defense spending and for a strong deterrent, both against Russia and China. And that, to me, says that, you know, I, I'll cue Ron on this. I think this is his line, but the, the trillion dollar defense budget is uh, most likely real in a couple of years. Um, and I, I, I haven't even discussed this with uh, Lockheed executives, but I'm going to take a, a, a swing at this. I do not believe anybody was trying to do that to the F-16 line, <laughs> at least the way you characterized it. Uh, it sure seemed like it back about a dozen years ago. You know, I mean, yes, about a dozen years ago. Yes. But I was, good Lord, that's such a ugh, uh, that's an awful uh, image. Um, Ron, um, walk us through. Right. I mean, how market sentiment has changed in the wake of the whole balloon. Uh, episode, right? I mean, we, we saw the two of those might not be recoverable, but I'm just going to take a wag of this. <laughs> if, if you're a parking lot balloon, uh, you know, a used car lot balloon or a small weather balloon and you get hit with an AIM-9, my bet is there isn't a lot of balloon left over uh, for you to, to for you to pick up, right? Um, I, I think that that might be the end of that. Um, you know, different from a 200-foot diameter envelope with a, you know, a giant three-city bus-sized payload hanging off the bottom of it, right? Uh, which which we appear to be uh, recovering pretty successfully. Sort of walk us through the sentiment change, and actually, like, does that does does the delivery of actually combat air power to the Ukrainians drive any sort of market shifts that you can see? I should have asked this to to Richard as well, but I mean, sort of any market shifts, or is it sort of like, hey, these are things that are going to come out of inventory? There'll be some work for services companies, you know, maybe some training companies, but that's the end of it. Even though the U.S. Air Force probably would do the training anyway. Walk us through sort of the sentiment change as the administration prepares to submit its budget request. Yeah, I mean, it's a good, good question. I'm going to digress for a second because I can't help myself on your balloon question. Actually, if an AIM-9 hit a balloon, I don't know if it just pops it or the AIM-9 actually does what it would do if it hit something harder. So I don't know. That's a you got to ask a balloon expert that. Um, Shooting a, a balloon with an AIM-9, it's kind of like hitting a deer with a 155 millimeter shell. I, I don't know if it just goes right through it or not. Anyway, I digress. Um, on the change of market sentiment. It's the transiting of the 155 shell through the deer <laughs> that tends yeah. to be the definitive moment. Although it's a, it's an excellent question. It does have an optical yeah. sensor as well right. as what, you know, so it has the yeah. thermal sensor. It has an optical sensor yeah. as well. Uh, but, you know, it, it, the hard part they were finding is doing a gun run on it is a pretty hard thing to do. Uh, yeah. without, you know, potentially hitting it, uh, right? Because it's your relative closure speeds are significant. Yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah, so we digress. 
So back to your question um, on market sentiment. Market sentiment on defense has been interesting this year and interesting, I mean, really volatile, um, uh, more volatile than even other parts of the market, right? So if you look at um, where defense was at the end of last year, so let's just pick Northrop Grumman as a, an example, or you could pick Lockheed Martin. It wasn't too far behind. Uh, in a market that was down 20% last year, Northrop Grumman was up 40%. Uh, Lockheed Martin was up in the high 30s. Massive outperformance. I mean, to see names like big, large cap names outperform the broader market by 60%. I mean, that just doesn't happen every year. So as we rolled into this year, what we saw was um, um, this this broad trade of, you know, picking last year's underperformers and selling last year's performers. And, you know, defense kind of got thrown in the dustbin. Uh, and then what we saw happen was defense companies started deploying capital in very shareholder-friendly ways. No big surprise. Uh, you know, Northrop uh, did an accelerated buyback and so on and so forth. And then, and then we saw commercial aerospace perform pretty well. And then we had the balloons and the tension and this and that. Now sentiment on defense is, I think, kind of actually kind of reversing. Um, when you talk to investors today, I would say the consensus trade is being being long some form of commercial aerospace and probably neutral on defense. But if you look at how the stock's performing, that's not actually what the stocks are doing. And I think this balloon episode, what's important about it from a sentiment point of view, isn't necessarily what it fundamentally means for the budget, because that's an open debate. We could probably talk for hours about that. It might not mean much. It might mean a lot. Um is it's brought public awareness into, yeah, we have potential competitors, enemy states that are watching us closely. And, and I think that's maybe something that was missing from, from the broader debate. So sentiment has changed. I would say sentiment is you know, moving in a, in a more positive direction from just, how can I say it, from a stock perspective. I mean, I guess from a state of the world perspective, it's not positive, but from a stock perspective, um, it, it's definitely shifting in that direction. And, and not all that big of an impact uh, on F you know, like a hundred F sixteens going to Ukraine. Does that move any needle anywhere? Right, because they would be pulled out of the boneyard. We might give them some active duty jets that might be warmer, uh, right? But but I think I think the key point there and the, the broader point. It's not just F sixteens, and and I think we've this is a, a again an ongoing debate, and hopefully we get some answer to it uh, when the budget comes out. Um, things that have come out of inventory, because if you think about as we know, but. You know, I think the market's kind of getting its mind around this. Um, everything that we've sent to the Ukraine, for the most part, has come out of inventory, and that inventory has to get replaced. At what levels does it get replaced? So if we do send X number of F-16s out of inventory, what do they get replaced with? Do they get replaced? Don't they get replaced? That kind of thing. And I think that's in the, the market consciousness. And if you just see this week, uh, as an example, there was the announcement of the DOD of a nearly billion-dollar buy of 155-millimeter shells, hopefully not for deer. Um, that, just kidding, that to replace those that have been sent to the Ukraine. I mean, a billion dollars of 155 millimeter shells is a, is a lot. And, and that's being split between General Dynamics and another contractor. Um, so we're starting to see that really flow through. And as you know, I mean, the real debate is if you send, you know, 10 of something, is the replacement 10 or is it 15? You know, right. do we have to rethink readiness in a world that seems unfortunately a little more, um, you know, dynamic from a from a security point of view. Um, I, I just want to point out, right? I mean, that contract that Doug Bush, the Army acquisition executive, uh, also discussed, right? I mean, we're trying to produce ninety thousand rounds a month, 
uh, is what the goal is, which I think we're going to hit early next year, uh, or we're going to hit next year, which is which is significant. And I believe, by the way, Ron, everybody you talk to, there is a sea change in, and uh, you know, Frank Kendall, the Air Force Secretary, has told us. Other senior officials have told me the same thing. You're going to see this reflected in the budget uh, when it when it comes out in terms of the sort of the the sustained industrial base investment because we recognize we are really the arsenal of democracy i mean ultimately we're the supplier of last resort uh to our allies uh and partners as well in a in a bind especially if we want them to come along with us um real quick on the hypersonic i mean anything special about this hypersonic award uh right i mean 1.1 billion uh put the uh army's uh hypersonic uh weapon on the zumwalt class um you know certainly is an improvement in capability uh, but is there anything sort of broader the signals? I mean, this has been sort of a wave of hypersonic contracts uh, that have been washing over us. We've heard for a while now, um, you know, there's been a big push on hypersonic. So it shouldn't be all that surprising that there's being awards made on hypersonic. On the Zoom wall specifically, um, and one of the big questions has been, right, because they took the gun off that ship. What, what were they going to put on it? You know, there was right. one, one point they were talking about putting a laser and what, whatever. So, I mean, if you can actually arm the thing with, with something, that, that's probably pretty useful. But, you know, the, the, you know, the, the Zoom wall has been, sadly, maybe um, a, a mismonikered ship that sort of has, it's a bit of an orphan. Um, so maybe this brings some more relevant to, relevancy, relevancy right. to, to the ship in the Navy, but, but we'll see. Uh, and, and certainly, right, that's that's the whole goal. I mean, obviously, there were supposed to be 32 of them, and you've ended up with uh, three of them. Richard, you had something you wanted to quickly add before we go to uh, Sash uh, on war stuff. And um, I want to get your take on the Iranian uh, jets, actually, which we strangely have not even discussed yet, uh, the ex-Egyptian planes. But uh, go ahead. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's quite interesting. Uh, this is a... Yeah, it, an emerging area of inter-service rivalry. We've known that for some time. And of course, this uh, this program has been a long time developing and will continue to be a long time. It's gonna be a while before anything is actually deployed in significant numbers because of technology maturation issues with hypersonics. But it is interesting that there's this relationship between the Navy and Army on, on this. It's a, a common, different launchers, common munition, which is kind of refreshing given the, you know, again, potential for inter-service rivalry here moving forward. But again, you know, we've had all of this and there's been a massive ramp up in R&D. What will it take to bring these things into procurement and production? That I think is going to take some time. Um, um, although, uh, although, let me interrupt uh, briefly, right? Lieutenant General Neil Thurgood, uh, one of uh, the nation, I mean, I have to tell you, I mean, he's, he's, got, he's a Hall of Flame Hall of Fame player every year would come to the B of A uh, conference, uh, the conference uh, that uh, Ron hosts and we work together on and made the case that actually the 2024 in service date was, you know, also to build the industrial base to produce these things at scale, right? I mean, the debate is this is a prompt global strike missile. We're not going to have that many of them, but they may play a very important role. Whereas the Air Force is looking for a larger number of air breathing systems that it can deploy, you know, with, at a cheaper price point, right? I mean, so we might be getting closer to that delivery than people and industrialization than people think, right? Yeah, I think that's right. From an early capability standpoint, rather than a mass production standpoint, that's exactly right. Although I'd also urge people to look at the recent congressional 
um, budget office report, the CBO report that just came out a couple of weeks ago, talking about issues with hypersonics. And, you know, as I've often said in this industry, there are two kinds of people in the world, uh, engineers and economists. They don't like talking to each other very much. And the CBO makes the point, is this really competitive? Is this really cost effective? You know, I mean, it looks at the Russian experience firing a small number of hypersonics in the opening days of Ukraine. And basically, you know, do you want your, the same target destroyed by a $50,000 missile or a $5 million missile? <laughs> you know, it kind of does right. the same thing. That's not to make an argument that we shouldn't be doing that much on hypersonics, but let's rate it back in in terms of expectations for another revolution in military affairs and a massive new market that sees mass production. That's, I guess, my, my um, point. Yeah, um, but the Russians, just because the Russians don't know what they're doing doesn't mean the Chinese won't know what they're doing either, right? Even though, even though you make a, a fair point. So, so, certainly true. So, but I'd urge people to read the CBO report. It's rather well done. Um, on the Su-35s, really interesting. You know, these are the first new, sort of new, like probably new fighter jets that were inducted into the Iranian Air Force in years. Why is that? You know, I mean, lack of ability to pay, lack of, I mean, it, it's not that the Russians or Chinese wouldn't have sold it to them. So I'm kind of baffled by that. These apparently were Su-35s that were going to go to Egypt. So that's just as interesting a story. Why didn't Egypt take delivery? Pretty good chance we told the Egyptians, don't cross the Rubicon. This cat's a thing, countering America's adversaries for sanctions act really has teeth. Don't do this. And maybe it's even related to that uh, rather mysterious and possibly accurate Air Force announcement. One Air Force uh, general back, I think, one seven or eight months ago said, oh, it looks like the Egyptians might be in line for F-15s. So this could be just a series of events right. uh, that are related somehow. Hold on one second. Ron, uh, we know you got to go. Thanks very much. Hope you guys had a terrific holiday weekend uh, and that the fencing uh, ended up uh, as well as it should. Thanks so much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Vago. Thanks. Sash, you've been very patient, but you're going to bring us home talking about uh, the war. Uh, but Richard, real quick, uh, write story in Stars and Stripes about F-18s, uh, that the newer jets are not as durable or uh, long lasting as the older version of uh, the aircraft. Um, again, there's a lot that goes into that flying hours you're putting on the jets maintenance uh right uh supportability original design some compromises were made um ultimately in order to be able to drive that unit pr uh, price uh down and the, and the navy has looked at buying more airplanes than repairing the ones they have etc um you know uh walk us through what this uh, story means sort of why now as the Navy clearly starts to make the case right for the replacement for the F-18 that is not the F-35. Yeah, this is this is truly fascinating because we really don't know what the future. We're probably more uh, at sea, as they say, uh, in terms of the future of carrier aviation than we've been since the cancellation of the A-12 back, uh, you know, 30 years ago. Um, it, obviously, yeah, one solution is you keep building Super Hornet, but that doesn't seem to be happening, despite the eight planes added to the 23 budget. Um, they were supposed to embark upon a slept, you know, massive rebuild program. That doesn't appear to be happening. There's a lot of back and forth on that. The answer is clearly not F-35Cs. The Navy doesn't seem to want more than a small amount, very token number. Uh, MQ-25, boy, that thing just, you know, <laughs> the Navy doesn't appear to be eager to do much with it. Um, so, FAXX, okay, it's not going to be a navalized NGAD because there's no way NGAD is small enough to fit on carry. You know, it'd be like navalizing 
an F-111, which I think was tried and failed. Um, it, what is the future here? FAXX is going to be a lot slower to mature. This time, the Marines are not going to be part of it because they are enthusiastic F-35 users. What is the Navy thinking here in terms of you know their carrier decks as these super hornets wear out faster than expected and as they're utilized more than expected? What does carrier aviation in the late 2030s look like? It's one of the, the biggest questions in aerospace now. I should point out also that, that uh, Stripes was reporting uh, on a uh, Congressional Budget Office uh, report. Um, but Sash, you've been very patient. Bring us home. Uh, where are we on the war? Uh, what's your guess? What's the sentiment? What does Ukraine need? Volodymyr Zelensky started the Munich conference off by uh, begging everybody for more uh, weapons um, and faster weapons, uh, right? Let's get to these decisions faster. There are lives uh, hanging in the balance. Uh, Russia obviously stepping up its uh, campaign as the first anniversary draws near. Just some thoughts on your part about where we are and where we're going as a um, as a former soldier. Yeah, uh, look, there's a, it's a race between the two sides as to who can launch their spring offensive first. <clears throat> the Russians have been massing um, forces uh, in the north and the east. Um, there's some suggestion that they may, may gain access to Belarus again to, uh, to ha- use that country as, a, as an axis um, uh, to attack down towards Kyiv. Um, uh, but it's harder for Russia to mass forces now, certainly within Ukraine, now that um, uh, Ukraine has got high mass. Um, once, you, once you mass forces, and particularly you know, ammunition and other uh, supplies, you just create a very, very big target for high mass. Um, there is a, a deeply unpleasant attritional battle going on around um, Bakhmut in the east. Um, Russians are definitely gaining ground. But I mean, you know, Ben Wallace, the UK Defence Secretary, said, the ground they're gaining is measured in yards, not in kilometres, and the casualties they're taking are measured in thousands, um, uh, you know, per, per week. So this is very, very attritional. On the Ukrainian side, their race um, is to um, uh, develop a Western combined arms capability. There's a report that the first uh, combined arms re- you know, regiment battalion has uh, started training um, with the with the United States Army uh, in on a training area in uh, in Germany, um, similar things are going on in in the UK as well, and they have then got to meet up with this ragtag and bobtail of uh, leopard tanks, Challenger tanks, and M1s that are being delivered out of everybody's stock and and try to make them work. But Ukraine originally said if they could get two modern armored brigades, and a, you know an armored brigade is roughly a hundred modern a hundred maybe 150 modern main battle tanks and about and the same number or a bit more of um, infantry fighting vehicles, 4,000 plus, probably closer to 5,000 uh, trained soldiers. If they could get two modern armoured uh, armored brigades, that would give them the sort of force they need to uh, launch very, very powerful counterattacks. Um, let's see, that seems to me to be weeks off, but I think the progress there is good. And I mean, you know, the point you make about the decision-making cycle Two weeks ago, we were saying there's no way that Ukraine's going to get F-16s. Now we're saying, yeah, probably. And the, the whole training cycle might be a bit quicker. So I think um, President Zelensky is absolutely right. The, um, we do need to make decisions quicker and then deliver stuff quicker. I think objectively that is happening. But the bit that is going to take you know, longest to happen is ramping up production of what will still be the war winners, which is the artillery. You know, you can't launch an, an armoured strike without artillery and artillery usage is 
It's not phenomenally high. It's exactly what we always thought it was going to be. But of course, we conveniently ignored that because that was one of the, um, the, the, the bad lessons we took away from Iraq and Afghanistan. So building up Western supplies uh, of artillery is, the, is really what, what Ukraine needs at the moment. Uh, terrific. Uh, thanks very much for bringing that home for us, uh, Sash. Uh, Richard, thanks very much, guys. Really appreciate it. Uh, hope you guys had a great weekend. I uh, hope you guys have a great week and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks so much, so much Vargo, as always. Great to be on, Vargo. Thank you.